Chapter sixty nine and seventy of the Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter sixty nine. In coming to the conclusion that he would sever the connection between himself and his family, once for all Ernest had reckoned without his family. Theobald wanted to be rid of his son, it is true, in so far as he wished him to be no nearer, at any rate, than the Antipodes. But he had no idea of entirely breaking with him. He knew his son well enough to have a pretty shrewd idea that this was what Ernest would wish himself, and perhaps as much for this reason as for any other, he was determined to keep up the connection, provided it did not involve Ernest's coming to Battersby, nor any recurring outlay. When the time approached for him to leave prison, his father and mother consulted as to what course they should adopt. "'We must never leave him to himself,' said Theobald impressively. We can neither of us wish that. Oh, no, no, dearest Theobald, exclaimed Christina. Whoever else deserts him, and however distant he may be from us, he must still feel that he has parents whose hearts beat with affection for him, no matter how cruelly he has pained them. He has been his own worst enemy, said Theobald. He has never loved us as we deserved, and now he will be withheld by false shame from wishing to see us. He will avoid us if he can. Then we must go to him ourselves, said Christina. Whether he likes it or not, we must be at his side to support him as he enters again upon the world. If we do not want him to give us the slip, we must catch him as he leaves prison. We will, we will, our faces shall be the first to gladden his eyes as he comes out, and our voices the first to exhort him to return to the paths of virtue. I think, said Theobald, if he sees us in the street, he will turn round and run away from us. He is intensely selfish. Then we must get leave to go inside the prison, and see him before he gets outside. After a good deal of discussion, this was the plan they decided on adopting, and having so decided, Theobald wrote to the governor of the jail, asking whether he could be admitted inside the jail to receive Ernest, when his sentence had expired. He received an answer in the affirmative, and the pair left Battersby the day before Ernest was to come out of prison. Ernest had not reckoned on this and was rather surprised on being told a few minutes before nine that he was to go into the receiving-room before he left the prison as there were visitors waiting to see him. His heart fell, for he guessed who they were, but he screwed up his courage and hastened to the receiving-room. There, sure enough, standing at the end of the table nearest the door were the two people whom he regarded as the most dangerous enemies he had in all the world, his father and mother. He could not fly, but he knew that if he wavered, he was lost. 
His mother was crying, but she sprang forward to meet him and clasped him in her arms. "'Oh, my boy, my boy!' she sobbed, and she could say no more. Ernest was as white as a sheet. His heart beat so that he could hardly breathe. He let his mother embrace him, and then, withdrawing himself, stood silently before her with the tears falling from his eyes. At first he could not speak. For a minute or so the silence on all sides was complete. Then, gathering strength, he said in a low voice, Mother, it was the first time he had called her anything but Mama, we must part. On this, turning to the warder, he said, I believe I am free to leave the prison if I wish to do so. You cannot compel me to remain here longer. Please take me to the gates. Theobald stepped forward. Ernest, you must not, shall not, leave us in this way. Do not speak to me, said Ernest, his eyes flashing with a fire that was unwanted in them. Another warder then came up and took Theobald aside, while the first conducted Ernest to the gates. Tell them, said Ernest, from me, that they must think of me as one dead, for I am dead to them. Say that my greatest pain is the thought of the disgrace I have inflicted upon them, and that above all things else I will study to avoid paining them hereafter. But say also that if they write to me I will return their letters unopened, and that if they come and see me I will protect myself in whatever way I can. By this time he was at the prison gate, and in another moment was at liberty. After he had got a few steps out he turned his face to the prison wall, leant against it for support, and wept as though his heart would break. Giving up father and mother for Christ's sake was not such an easy matter after all. If a man has been possessed by devils for long enough, they will rend him as they leave him, however imperatively they may have been cast out. Ernest did not stay long where he was, for he feared each moment that his father and mother would come out. He pulled himself together and turned into the labyrinth of small streets which opened out in front of him. He had crossed his Rubicon, not perhaps very heroically or dramatically, but then it is only in dramas that people act dramatically. At any rate, by hook or by crook, he had scrambled over and was out upon the other side. Already he thought of much which he would gladly have said, and blamed his want of presence of mind. But after all, it mattered very little. Inclined though he was to make very great allowances for his father and mother, he was indignant at their having thrust themselves upon him without warning at a moment when the excitement of leaving prison was already as much as he was fit for. It was a mean advantage to have taken over him, but he was glad they had taken it, for it made him realize more fully than ever that his one chance lay in separating himself completely from them. The morning was grey, and the first signs of winter fog were beginning to show themselves, for it was now the 30th of September. 
Ernest wore the clothes in which he had entered prison, and was therefore dressed as a clergyman. No one who looked at him would have seen any difference between his present appearance and his appearance six months previously. Indeed, as he walked slowly through the dingy, crowded lane called Air Street Hill, which he well knew, for he had clerical friends in that neighborhood, the months he had passed in prison seemed to drop out of his life, and so powerfully did association carry him away that finding himself in his old dress and in his old surroundings, he felt dragged back into his old self, as though his six months in prison life had been a dream from which he was now waking to take things up as he had left them. This was the effect of unchanged surroundings upon the unchanged part of him. But there was a changed part, and the effect of unchanged surroundings upon this was to make everything seem almost as strange as though he had never had any life but his prison one, and was now born into a new world. All our lives long, every day and every hour, we are engaged in the process of accommodating our changed and unchanged selves to changed and unchanged surroundings. Living, in fact, in nothing else than this process of accommodation, when we fail in it a little, we are stupid. When we fail flagrantly, we are mad. When we suspend it temporarily, we sleep. When we give up the attempt altogether, we die. In quiet, uneventful lives, the changes, internal and external, are so small that there is little or no strain in the process of fusion and accommodation. In other lives there is great strain, but there is also great fusing and accommodating power. In others, great strain with little accommodating power. A life will be successful or not according as the power of accommodation is equal to or unequal to the strain of fusing and adjusting internal and external changes. The trouble is that in the end we shall be driven to admit the unity of the universe so completely as to be compelled to deny that there is either an external or an internal, but must see everything both as external and internal at one and the same time, subject and object, external and internal, being unified as much as everything else. This will knock our whole system over but then every system has got to be knocked over by something. Much the best way out of this difficulty is to go in for separation between internal and external, subject and object, when we find this convenient, and unity between the same when we find unity convenient. This is illogical, but extremes are alone logical, and they are always absurd. The mean is alone practicable, and it is always illogical. It is faith and not logic which is the supreme arbiter. They say all roads lead to Rome, and all philosophies that I have ever seen lead ultimately either to some gross absurdity, or else to the conclusion already more than once insisted on in these pages, that the just shall live by faith that is to say that sensible people will get through life by rule of thumb as they may interpret it most conveniently, 
without asking too many questions for conscience' sake. Take any fact, and reason upon it to the bitter end, and it will ere long lead to this as the only refuge from some palpable folly. But to return to my story. When Ernest got to the top of the street and looked back, he saw the grimy, sullen walls of his prison filling up the end of it. He paused for a minute or two. There, he said to himself, I was hemmed in by bolts which I could see and touch. Here I am barred by others which are none the less real. Poverty and ignorance of the world. It was no part of my business to try to break the material bolts of iron and escape from prison. But now that I am free I must surely seek to break these others. He had read somewhere of a prisoner who had made his escape by cutting up his bedstead with an iron spoon. He admired and marveled at the man's mind, but could not even try to imitate him. In the presence of immaterial barriers, however, he was not so easily daunted, and felt as though, even if the bed were iron and the spoon a wooden one, he could find some means of making the wood cut the iron sooner or later. He turned his back upon Air Street Hill and walked down Leather Lane to Holborn. Each step he took, each face or object that he knew, helped at once to link him on to the life he had led before his imprisonment, and at the same time to make him feel how completely that imprisonment had cut his life into two parts, the one of which could bear no resemblance to the other. He passed down Fetter Lane into Fleet Street, and so to the temple, to which I had just returned from my summer holiday. It was about half-past nine, and I was having my breakfast, when I heard a timid knock at the door, and opened it to find Ernest. Chapter 70 I had begun to like him on the night Townley had sent for me and on the following day I thought he had shaped well. I had liked him also during our interview in prison, and wanted to see more of him, so that I might make up my mind about him. I had lived long enough to know that some men who do great things in the end are not very wise when they are young. Knowing that he would leave prison on the 30th, I had expected him, and as I had a spare bedroom, pressed him to stay with me, till he could make up his mind what he would do. Being so much older than he was, I anticipated no trouble in getting my own way, but he would not hear of it. The utmost he would assent to was that he should be my guest till he could find a room for himself, which he would set about doing at once. He was still much agitated, but grew better as he ate a breakfast, not of prison fare, and in a comfortable room. It pleased me to see the delight he took in all about him. The fireplace with the fire in it, the easy chairs, the times, my cat, the red geraniums in the window, to say nothing of coffee, bread and butter, sausages, marmalade, etc. Everything was pregnant with the most exquisite pleasure to him. The plane trees were full of leaf still, he kept rising from the breakfast-table to admire them. Never till now, he said, had he known what the enjoyment of these things really was. 
he ate looked laughed and cried by turns with an emotion which i can neither forget nor describe he told me how his father and mother had lain in wait for him as he was about to leave prison i was furious and applauded him heartily for what he had done he was very grateful to me for this other people he said would tell him he ought to think of his father and mother rather than of himself and it was such a comfort to find someone who saw things as he saw them himself even if i had differed from him i should not have said so but i was of his opinion and was almost as much obliged to him for seeing things as i saw them as he to me for doing the same kind office by himself cordially as i disliked theobald and christina i was in such a hopeless minority in the opinion i had formed concerning them that it was pleasant to find someone who agreed with me then there came an awful moment for both of us a knock as of a visitor and not a postman was heard at my door goodness gracious i exclaimed why didn't we sport the oak perhaps it is your father but surely he would hardly come at this time of day go at once into my bedroom i went to the door and sure enough there were both theobald and christina i could not refuse to let them in and was obliged to listen to their version of the story which agreed substantially with ernest christina cried bitterly theobald stormed after about ten minutes during which i assured them that i had not the faintest conception where their son was i dismissed them both i saw they looked suspiciously upon the manifest signs that someone was breakfasting with me and parted from me more or less defiantly but i got rid of them and poor ernest came out again looking white frightened and upset he had heard voices but no more and did not feel sure that the enemy might not be gaining over me we sported the oak now and before long he began to recover after breakfast we discussed the situation i had taken away his wardrobe and books for mrs jupp's but had left his furniture pictures and piano giving mrs jupp the use of these so that she might let her room furnished in lieu of charge for taking care of the furniture as soon as ernest heard that his wardrobe was at hand he got out a suit of clothes he had had before he had been ordained and put it on at once much as i thought to the improvement of his personal appearance then we went into the subject of his finances he had had ten pounds from prior only a day or two before he was apprehended of which between seven and eight were in his purse when he entered the prison. This money was restored to him on leaving. He had always paid cash for whatever he bought, so that there was nothing to be deducted for debts. Besides this, he had his clothes, books, and furniture. He could, as I have said, had the hundred pounds from his father if he had chosen to emigrate. But this, both Ernest and I, for he brought me round to his opinion, agreed it would be better to decline. This was all he knew of as belonging to him. 
He said he proposed at once taking an unfurnished top-back attic in as quiet a house as he could find, say at three or four shillings a week, and look out for work as a tailor. I did not think it much mattered what he began with, for I felt pretty sure he would ere long find his way to something that suited him, if he could get a start with anything at all. The difficulty was how to get him started. It was not enough that he should be able to cut out and make clothes, that he should have the organs, so to speak, of a tailor. He must be put into a tailor's shop and guided for a little while by someone who knew how and where to help him. The rest of the day he spent looking for a room, which he soon found, and in familiarizing himself with liberty. In the evening I took him to the Olympic, where Robson was then acting in a burlesque on Macbeth, Mrs. Keeley, if I remember rightly, taking the part of Lady Macbeth. In the scene before the murder, Macbeth had said he could not kill Duncan when he saw his boots upon the landing. Lady Macbeth put a stop to her husband's hesitation by whipping him up under her arm and carrying him off the stage, kicking and screaming. Ernest laughed till he cried. "'What rot Shakespeare is after this!' he exclaimed involuntarily. I remembered his essay on the Greek tragedians, and was more I esprit with him than ever. Next day he set about looking for employment, and I did not see him until about five o'clock when he came and said that he had had no success. The same thing happened the next day, and the day after that, Wherever he went he was invariably refused and often ordered point-blank out of the shop. I could see by the expression of his face, though he said nothing, that he was getting frightened, and began to think I should have come to the rescue. He said he had made a great many inquiries and had always been told the same story. He found that it was easy to keep on in an old line, but very hard to strike out in a new one. He talked to the fishmonger in Leather Lane, where he went to buy a bloater for his tea, casually, as though from curiosity, and without any interested motive. "'Sell,' said the master of the shop, "'why nobody wouldn't believe what can be sold by penorths, or two penorths, if you go the right way to work. Look at Welks, for instance. Last Saturday night, me and my little Emma here?' We sold seven pounds worth of whelks between eight and half past eleven o'clock, and almost all in penorths and two penorths, a few haporths, but not many. It was the steam that did it. We kept a boiling of em hot and hot, and whenever the steam came strong up from the cellar on to the pavement, the people bought, but whenever the steam went down, they left off buying. So we boiled them over and over again till they was all sold. That's just where it is. If you know your business, you can sell. If you don't, you'll soon make a mess of it. Why, but for the steam, I should not have sold ten shillings worth of whelks all the night through. This and many another yarn of kindred substance, which he heard from other people, determined Ernest more than ever to stake on tailoring as the one trade about which he knew anything at all. Nevertheless, here were three or four days gone by, and employment seemed as far off as ever. I now did what I ought to have done before, 
that is to say, I called on my own tailor whom I had dealt with for over a quarter of a century and asked his advice. He declared Ernest's plan to be hopeless. If, said Mr. Larkins, for this was my tailor's name, he had begun at fourteen, it might have done, but no man of twenty-four could stand being turned to work into a workshop full of tailors. He would not get on with the men, nor the men with him. You could not expect him to be, hail fellow, well met, with them, and you could not expect his fellow workmen to like him if he was not. A man must have sunk low through drink or natural taste for low company, before he could get on with those who have had such a different training from his own. Mr. Larkin said a great deal more, and wound up by taking me to see the place where his own men worked. This is a paradise, he said, compared to most workshops. What gentleman could stand this air, think you, for a fortnight? I was glad enough to get out of the hot, fetid atmosphere in five minutes, and saw that there was no brick of Ernest's prison to be loosened by going and working among tailors in a workshop. Mr. Larkins wound up by saying that even if my protégé were a much better workman than he probably was, no master would give him employment, for fear of creating a bother among the men. I left, feeling that I ought to have thought of all this myself, and was more than ever perplexed as to whether I had not better let my young friend have a few thousand pounds and send him out to the colonies, when, on my return home at about five o'clock, I found him waiting for me, radiant, and declaring that he had found all he wanted. End of chapter 70 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman